Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Kid Parker, who is a professor of bioengineering and applied physics in the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Harvard University. Kid is also director of the multidisciplinary SEAS disease physics group. Kid researches cardiac cell biology and tissue engineering, traumatic brain injury, and biological applications of micro and nanotechnologies. Working in both biometric microsystems and programmable nanomaterials, he's involved in projects ranging from developing nanofabrics for applications in tissue regeneration, to create organs on chips to address diseases such as asthma, muscular dystrophy, diabetes, brain injury, uh, and others. Welcome, Kit. Thank you for having me. So uh, there are a lot of interesting things uh, that you have been involved in over the years, um, especially in the biophysics group at Harvard. Uh, one of the areas uh, that is, there's a lot of interest in and a lot of work uh, has been done is in the nanofiber area. And, you know, from my perspective, uh, material sciences, I would argue, has um, sort of underperformed uh, compared to many other uh, engineering domains. Uh, but, you know, when I was going to engineering school in India, my professors used to tell me that material sciences is where the battle is going to be won because, you know, innovation there could have very, very broad applications. And so nanofibers, um, you are designing, uh, you know, um, clothing, extreme temperatures, armors, uh, things that could uh, resist explosions and so on. Do you want to talk a bit about uh, that area? Yeah, sure. So um, why don't I uh, start how I got interested in this? I was um, I was in Afghanistan in 2003 and um, got um, me and my I got called into a situation where um, a uh, five year old child had been burned. Um, he'd been effectively dipped into uh, boiling water up to about his chest and it was horrific and he died 
but it was it was about as awful as you could possibly imagine. And I came back to Harvard to start my lab after my first tour in Afghanistan. And, you know, you can't see something like that. It was it impacted me and my guys in the events surrounding what happened with that kid getting burned and what happened immediately after yeah. were, were pretty horrific. And, um, you know, I have this incredible platform at Harvard. I was studying mechanotransduction in the heart. And the more I thought about extracellular matrix networks in the heart, I you know, just couldn't help but think about the kid as soon as i saw him i knew he was going to die it was too much surface area hmm. you know I, I just knew he wasn't going to survive and the burn was too bad and so i started thinking about this protein called fibronectin which we use with cardiac muscle cells because there's something really interesting about this protein hmm. it turns out when you do a surgery on a baby that's in the womb um when they're born there's little or no scar and it's because there's a lot of this protein called fibronectin in their skin. And over time with age, the amount of fibronectin in your skin goes away. Hmm. So it dawned on me that maybe you could come up with a wound dressing with this globular protein that um, you could have scarless wound healing, thinking about hmm. that kid who got burned. Hmm. And, and um, so I had this, I, but it's a globular protein, you got to unfold it. So I had this idea that I could use a cotton candy machine and spew this globular protein out of a nozzle and the shear forces would unfold the fibronectin and induce fibrillogenesis. Cause no one's ever been able to use this as a, a building substrate, an engineering substrate. You know, some engineers build things that are concrete, steel, various, you know, plastics. You know, I build things that are cells and proteins and cells obviously have a vote as to whether or not I'm gonna have a good day or not as an engineer. Fibronectin is one of the ways to help cells vote hmm. the way you want them to have votes. So. We had like I had a fantastic postdoc in the lab at the time, Mohammed Badarasame. Uh, we basically took a centrifuge motor off of a centrifuge and hooked it up to a cotton candy machine. We were able to make these fibronectin fibers, did some wound experiments. We're continuing those, and it opened up this whole idea of building nanofiber wound dressings um, for children. And obviously, they're applicable to adults. But this whole avenue of developing nanofibers expanded out. We started thinking about making my daughter was born with a murmur, right? And I'm looking mm -hmm. at this, I'm thinking I need to build this kid a heart valve because children, you know, who have problems with heart valves, the problem is they have to have the heart valve replaced every few years because they outgrow what's put been put into them. Yeah. Uh, so you got to crack the chest on the kid and put a nail in. So like, you know, I hired a postdoc, uh, Kardec Balachandran, uh, who's now a professor at University of Arkansas. And we got to, did our earliest work on a heart valve. And now we're, we've got a heart valve in animal trials with our, collaborators over in Zurich, Switzerland, Simon Horstrup. So, but then we start thinking about other things you can do with fibers. We start thinking about making, um, uh, we're doing packaging for food. We started making tissue engineered meat. Um, we've had a lot of soldiers that have had urogenital genital injuries from IED blasts. We started thinking about Kevlar nanofibers so we could make your underwear that offered you some type of ballistic and thermal protection. Um, a graduate student showed up in my lab who's interested in cosmetics. And it turns out there's this huge environmental impact from cosmetic face masks that don't biodegrade. So we developed a technique for making biodegradable cosmetic face masks with some of the same technology we've been using to make wound dressing, soy, which really is the phytoestrogen. So we run the lab kind of like a gypsy camp. Uh, <laughs> we, we develop some core competencies and people have visions of what they want to do with them. And we just, everyone comes in. So, 
along the way, you know, we've had people like Lululemon, Tory Burch's team, Nike, Reebok, Kraft Foods. I mean, it's just like this parade of cats coming through the laboratory to talk about <laughs> what they're interested in. And we learn a little bit from every one of them. And several years ago, I got kind of frustrated with the creativity of the scientists and engineers, or at least the model for trained scientists and engineers. So we ripped out part of my lab and made studio space for artists. Yeah. So now we have artists in the lab and they know a lot about material science, especially mm. textiles. So between the people from fashion and beauty, Estee Lauder, um, the food companies, the fashion companies, medical device companies, Medtronic, Edwards, we learn a lot. And yeah. They just come and hang out for a day. And so there's lots of cool things you can do with this textile work. And um, if you show up and you got a problem, we're sniffing it for a while and see if we can help trim the edges on it. Yeah, such a such a broad uh, area. So st structurally, kid, but what is the what is the attractiveness of nanofibers? So if you think about wound healing, uh, what makes it attractive in wound healing? So your skin, biological tissues are held together by protein networks called extracellular matrix. Yeah, and um, you know, imagine you know, like a loofah pad you scrub your elbows with in the bath or the shower. Um, if you decellularize an organ, take all the cells out, you'll be left with a protein network that looks a little, a little bit like a loofah pad. And that mm -hmm. protein network are all nanofibers. It's all nano, protein nanofibers. And so the nanofibers, cells are designed so that they can read various, they get various cues and instructions on how to behave and how to build themselves and how to build tissue from these nanofibers networks called extracellular matrix. Mm -hmm. So we just started mimicking that. And then we realized that you could take this bio-inspired design for extracellular matrix and you could right. apply it to everything from body armor to face uh, cosmetic mask and clothing or whatever. So it's been just a lot of fun. It's this huge creative cycle that was bio-inspired, was inspired by a kid who didn't survive. And now we've done lots of different stuff. So, um, I'm, so I'm, it, it's sort of like a, you're providing a scaffolding type um type environment so that you can um, you, you can get the cells to grow grow in a sp specific fashion. Uh, what what yeah. is the what is the action there? So you know how when you build a house and you frame the house, yeah. you put a wooden frame up there and then you're putting sheetrock and stuff like this. So that wooden frame on the house is kind of like the exterior matrix. And so you can read it like a cells read it like a map. Yeah. Uh, uh, hey, this is where to go and this is what I need to be shaped like. Now the other thing though is that embedded in this this structural frame of the XR matrix network is chemistry that has other information. So the cells are reading information from this network that's guiding their behavior. At the same time, the cells can secrete their own XR matrix proteins and rebuild that network. Hmm. So there's really a read-write relationship between the XR matrix proteins and the cells. Hmm. And so that's important in development, you know, when you're, when, when you're, when you're growing, when you're forming, it's also can, can be a maladaptive when you have disease like fibrotic heart disease or maladaptive scarring from a wound closure, things like yeah. that. Yeah. And the, and the extreme temperature applications of nanofiber. So there again, you know, what makes nanofiber so attractive to extreme temperatures? Uh, uh, 
What, uh, the, the high temperature, you know, explosions, you know, those types of applications. What makes nanofiber more attractive there? Well, I don't know if in, in our more particular work that's recently coming out on, on nanofibers, where we basically use the same material that goes into to Kevlar, we made these paramid fiber sheets mm. um, that give this incredible thermal protection. Uh, really, what it is is there's a we created an, an aerogel, and that allows um, um, a certain amount of thermal resistance as well as the the ballistic resistance that we were looking for. But you know what we were able to do is get like a twenty fold heat insulation capability with these aerogels, mm -hmm. um, and that was a, a, a pretty big deal for us. Um, you know, the if you your firefighters at your local firehouse have um, uh, their their bunker jackets, their bunker gear has Kevlar in it that protects them from abrasion and from flame. And that's what we thought that we could do with a lighter material that you mm -hmm. could put into an undergarment or maybe use for a drape in the operating room because, you know, they have operating room fires. Yeah. So the whole idea of being able to make these lightweight materials that offered some flame retardancy, that's a, bit, a big part of what we were, you know, trying to accomplish here. There is, uh, I would imagine, uh, there's also some space science applications for it, right, because of the, the strength uh, weight ratio as well as the temperature resistance. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you're, you're thinking about cutting weight, you know, if you're doing anything in flight. Um, and also just the ergonomics of having to wear heavy flame retardant stuff. So, um, you know, it, uh, we've recently done some work where we, we took these gelatin figures and we put a blowtorch up to them and we showed, you know, that the um, these aerogels offered, you know, quite a bit of insulation. Um, yeah. And, and it, you might have seen the videos we published that paper just came out in, in the journal Matter. Um, and and and. You know, this is obviously advantageous for if you're talking about children's pajamas. You used to, we used to worry quite a bit about house fires. If you're offering an operating room fire or if you're on a vehicle, you know, you're a NASCAR driver or, yeah. or any type of situation where you might be exposed to a thermal threat, um, having a lightweight material, uh, these continuous fibers uh, with strong mechanical properties that won't break down. Uh, when you are exposed to that thermal threat, then uh, you can hopefully survive it. That's what we're working on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I want to switch to another subject that uh, you have done some work in. So that is lab-grown meat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, uh, in life sciences, um, we know now what is bad for you and what's good for you. So if, uh, obviously, you know, the taste and texture of food is, is, uh, is something that you get used to and it's very difficult to switch out of. And so this sounds like something uh, that has a lot of potential. Yeah, so I, I tell you how I got interested in food. So many years ago, I got invited to be a judge on a Food Network show. And while we were filming, I would, you know, uh, in between breaks, I'd go and I'd talk to these chefs. And I was blown away by how much material science the chefs knew. They were, they were making flexible chocolate. And I'm like, how are you doing it? And they go, well, I'm putting alginate in there. And I'm thinking, alginate? Well, my colleague Dave Mooney, you know, has been, you know, the pioneer in using alginate for regenerative medicine. Mm. And so I'm talking to these chefs and these artists know material science quite well. Mm. So then later I got interested in the scientific aspects of barbecue. And, you know, barbecue is when you're smoking meat 
you're trying to break down really tough exocyter matrix networks in tissue so that you can chew it. And um, so we, I taught a class at Harvard. I went to barbecue judging school there at the Miami Culinary Institute. Um, me and my students spun off a company. We patented a smoker design. Uh, the company's called Dezora, and we sell the smoker with a company called Kamado Joe. And I spent a lot of time thinking about developing technologies to break down meat. Uh, but obviously, if you take a look at the environmental impact of, of meat production, farming, yes. um, it's pretty extraordinary. And so we started thinking about originally, we've been building tissues to go into bodies for a long time, heart valves and wound dressings. Uh, why don't we just build a tissue that's going to go in through the oral cavity, something that you could eat. <laughs> and at the time, you know, I had some people in the group, Luke McQueen and Christoph Chantre and Grant Gonzalez, uh, who we just started a company called Boston Meats um, to, to, to leverage the technology out of the laboratory. Uh, we started working on this. And uh, every rule I learned about smoking barbecue, every rule I learned about making biological tissues for regenerative medicine, was directly applicable to making meat. And the idea is, you're exactly right. Can you get taste and texture? And the other thing is, can you get the same nutritional content? So mm -hmm. all the technologies we were using to make nanofibers are applicable to making the scaffolds for that you want to build engineered meat off of. And when you're chewing into that filet mignon, the texture is an important part of the, the pleasure experience with the taste. Um, and so... That's why most of the engineered meats to date have been hamburger and sausage because you don't have to have the texture problem. We think our technologies will solve that texture problem. So yeah. that's what we're focusing on. Yeah, yeah. You know, I always felt that texture is a big part of taste, right? Yeah, it's certainly so, is. sort yeah. of stimulated, uh, simulated feeling uh, in the mouth. So if you can replicate texture, I think you're, you know, a good part there. This uh, impossible burger um revolution that's going on I, I guess that is from uh, plants right um and that that's again there's a lot of texture related research going on there yeah and, and i should point out that our technology we we first started making the scaffolds all the stuff we were some of the stuff we were doing for um wound dressings we were using stuff like soy or alfalfa that shun cook on who was a post who was a graduate student in my group started using that because they have phytoestrogens in it. They're good for, 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 for skin. Yeah. Um, you can also use those scaffolds for food. So we are making completely vegetarian or plant-based protein uh, meat products too. Mm -hmm. So we can use pea proteins and soy and alfalfa and other things. So our manufacturing technologies that we've invented are fairly robust and that they can handle animal or protein, uh, animal or plant proteins they can make scaffolds so the idea of making an impossible filet mignon completely vegetarian <laughs> protein but it gives you the same taste and texture of of animal filet mignon i don't know if that's going to be attainable but we certainly have the technology to do that more recently my research group has started you know so we think we've solved the the texture problem now we've started working on the taste problem and the taste in meat is always the fat right hmm. so um we've been using we've We've, we're just about to publish a result where we think we've cracked the code on how to grow fat and, and, and make fat fatter uh, in a dish and yeah. using these nanofiber three-dimensional scaffolds. So if we can build the fat into our meat, then we can solve some of the flavor problems. We're, we're excited about this. Yeah. In the long run, um, you know, just thinking about 
you know, certain diseases like obesity, um, you know, that gets into type 2 diabetes, hypertension, which is probably half, half of our healthcare cost today, uh, all point back to uh, good food. So if you can manufacture good food and uh, maybe in the long run even impart some um, some uh, medication <laughs> through the food. I think you're dead on. I think the early market of this, yeah. Um, I, mean, I know they got stuff in, in Burger King. I know they got them in Dunkin' Donuts now that you can buy it at your Whole Foods. But the, the probably the early market is medicinal foods. Yeah. Medicinal foods, I think, is the early market. You won't have to mass produce. You'll still be able to make your appropriate margins. You'll be able to deliver nutritional and medicinal content to the consumer. So I, I think you're you're dead on. The idea is your food as a medicine. Um, medicinal foods, I think, are, are the low-hanging fruit here. Yeah, and you know it could have a huge impact on society, right? Uh, and you know the disease types, you know uh, that that commands that a good part of the GDP uh, are potentially easily—I shouldn't say easily, but potentially uh, quite uh, influenceable uh, through food. And so I think there is a huge market there. I, I want to shift gears and go into another area that um, I'll start with uh, a recent article here called Pancreas on a Chip. Um, this is something that you're working on, right? Uh, yeah. After that. Yeah. 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 So um, effectively what we were doing is, you know, um, because of diabetes, um, there's various approaches. We were teamed up with Doug Melton, who has kind of been, the big leader in developing cell-based therapies for, for, for diabetic patients. And so we were working with, with Doug on a NIDDK uh, grant to develop a system because before you, you can take a stem cell and grow it up into a pancreatic beta cell. Hmm. But before you go and put that to a patient, you got to do a quality control check on this. And one of the biggest challenges we're having in the stem cell field right now is quality control, quality control manufacturing is, is just now entering the stem cell field, unfortunately. It's yeah. really behind on that. And so in order to do that, you got to build some specialized tools. And the idea with this chip was to be able to take Doug Melton's cells, put them in there, and measure the uh, insulin secretion when they go through various challenges, metabolic challenges. And so had a fantastic graduate student at the time, Aaron Gleberman, just a master designer who designed this microfluidic chip hmm. and um, as part of his, his thesis work. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it, it's, uh, the, the system is robust. I mean, we're actually applying to the chip to other medical problems now too, um, besides diabetes. But now what we're doing is we're giving uh, people like Doug Melton, uh, Vertex Pharma has bought Doug Melton's company, and now they're moving towards cell-based therapies uh, under the leadership of David Altshuler. He's the chief scientific officer over at Vertex, been uh, on this diabetes fight for a long time. So now we've developed a tool where we can test these cells before you put to a patient, make sure they're actually working. And that was the idea of doing a real-time ELISA assay. Right now, when they do the assay to check and see if these cells are screening insulin, it's about 24 hours to get the results. We get it in real time. So um, this is a major advance forward in quality manufacturing for stem cells. And so this is something that you could use to test medications? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, and in, in early on, that's what I think NIDDK's 
was most interested in. And they wanted to develop an organ on a chip or a pancreas on a chip so they could look at the efficacy of various drugs that were going to do that. I took a very different lens on the problem. And the great thing about NIH is they give you a little bit of freedom to, to do that. Yeah. And uh, I looked at it as a quality control tool. Um, they want to look at real-time response to various pharmaceutical challenges so you can measure the efficacy. And, and you know, the, the, there's not going to be a silver bullet to cure diabetes, artificial pancreas, cell therapy, or a drug. It's going to take an array of technologies. And so we're fortunate in that the Aaron's chip design will support both the um, development of medicinal therapeutics and also cell-based therapies for diabetes. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. You have another uh, one in the same area. So taking the brain apart to put it all together again. So this is, a again, an organ chip system linked to uh, a brain chip uh, with two blood uh, brain barriers uh, to understand the interactions between the brain and the blood vessels. You want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, so that was a collaboration with uh, my colleague Don Ingber over at the Wies Institute. And we had funding from the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency several years ago to do this. So we, you know, I've been very interested in traumatic brain injury and other you know, neurological diseases in my group for some time. One of the biggest challenges with treating neurological diseases is getting the drug out of the vascular, the cerebral vasculature and into the brain tissue. So there's a lot of work right now to understand the blood brain barrier yeah. and try to understand how that might regulate um, drug delivery to the brain. We took a different approach to this. Um, the idea was, are the endothelial cells in the cerebral vasculature uh, providing some type of metabolic control or regulation over neural networks in the brain, hmm. besides just delivering oxygen? And so I had, you know, I had a fantastic postdoc at the time, Ben Mayos, who's now a professor at Tel Aviv University, who was working on, uh, on this project with another postdoc from um, uh, Don Ingber's lab, uh, uh, Anna Herlin, who's now a professor over in Europe. And uh, what we found was that the endothelial cells that, that make up the walls of these blood vessels are acting like a metabolic throttle on the <laughs> neurons inside the brain. Now, the funny thing is when we built this system, we built a brain on a chip, and then we took two pieces of vasculature on different chips and coupled together so they were daisy-chained. <laughs> the way we tested this is um, we give it methamphetamine. So, yeah. Gil, when your listeners are smoking meth, hopefully they're not, but <laughs> you know, when you're smoking meth, uh, what happens with when you smoke meth is that you get a transient leak in your blood-brain barrier. Yeah, uh, It starts to leak a little bit. And what mm -hmm. we showed was that when we gave our, our brain-on-a-chip meth, uh, the vasculature started to leak. So that's how we knew we had a functioning blood-brain barrier. We basically tested it with meth. And then we could dive into the really meaty metabolic challenges uh, of, of that work. And um, and then that's what we did. We poured that in Nature Biotechnology back in 2018. And now there's been a more recent paper showing connections between endothelial cells and other cells in the brain. So we've kind of opened up a whole new avenue of metabolic regulation of neural activity by just the endothelial cells. Hmm. So that's, that's so interesting. So... The, the leak that you talk about, is that one directional? Oh, that's a good question. Well, that's going to depend probably on the interstitial pressure um, in there, whether you got fluid rushing from the brain into the bloodstream. I mean, it kind of depends on what your, which way your pressure gradient is, right? 
Yeah. And I would imagine it's going to be primarily outward because of, you know, your blood pressure is such that it keeps the internal, you know, the, the internal pressures in those blood vessels are a little bit higher than, than what you see in the interstitial space in the brain. So it's primarily going to be outward. If you got pressure, if you got so much swelling in your brain that um, you're pushing fluid into your bloodstream from your brain tissue, you got you got other problems to deal with. Yeah. No, I was, you know, I, I don't know if it's even possible. I was just thinking that whether it has any applications in delivering, um, you know, agents into the brain. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, that's one of the main things is yeah. like, you know, um, can you do stuff to induce transient um, um, uh, porosity of these uh, the cerebral vasculature so you could get large molecular weight therapeutic molecules into the brain tissue? And certainly that's what a lot of people are thinking about when they think about blood brain barrier and organs on chips as a, as a way to test. Can we, can we get some type of transient um, uh, um, increase in, in the porosity of the vascular wall so we can get stuff into the, um, so we can get stuff into the brain. Right. Right. You also tried a heart on a chip (laughs) uh, to speed up drug testing, right? Yeah. So, you know, that the heart is my primary, uh, is my favorite organ yeah. in heart disease. And, um, you know, we started our group many years ago. The primary goal was to understand how the heart builds itself. And we started from a cell, we went to tissues. And so we started this heart chip, not necessarily to test drugs, but we just wanted to like understand how does the heart build itself? Because it turns out like from about two days after you're born, the number of cardiac muscle cells you've got in um, your heart is pretty much what you have for the rest of your life until they're treated by disease or heart attacks, things like that. So since these cells aren't dividing anymore um, and different component parts from contracting all the time wear out, you talk about building the airplane while it's in flight, the cardiac muscle cell has to build itself effectively while it's in flight. It doesn't slow down, it doesn't stop beating. Yeah. They have to replace these molecular motors, protein sarcomeres and rebuild myofibrils and make extracellular matrix proteins and metabolize calcium and other things while it's beating. So a typical cardiac muscle cell synthesizes 5% of its proteins every day. That means every 20 days it, it rebuilds itself. So that's a big function. And so we had to build a system where we could study this in vitro yeah. while we measured tissue function. And so that's when we started the organs on chips work, um, which we've kind of, you know, we were kind of the, the first group to come up with a, or, with a heart on a chip. And we've been developing this technology for years now. We've moved to three dimensions where we're making small ventricles on chips. And um, it's been very rewarding. We've learned the fundamental rules by which a heart builds itself. And then we've um, been able to test various drugs and study different diseases with our collaborator, Bill Poo, who's a pediatric cardiologist over at Children's Hospital. And he's dealing with a lot of sick kids. So we use their stem cells to make models. And what we're going to go forward with, there's going to be an announcement very soon, is where we're going to model a clinical trial by taking these poor kids' uh, sick cells, building a model of their heart in a dish, and testing drugs on before we actually give the drug to the kids. So uh, this is going to be a big step forward for the safety of sick kids, is being able to do clinical trials and get human data without without getting patient data. Uh, And... uh, Bill Poo is really doing uh, good work over there, saving kids, and uh, we're we're lucky to be partnered with the people at Children's Hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we we are down a path. Uh, it seems to make it that um, you know either biological or mechanical uh, retracements 
of organs uh, are, are going to be there, right? So it has some societal implications. Um, what do you think, uh, how do you think it will pan out from a societal perspective? You know, that, that's a that's a big question. You know, my long-term goal is to, is to build a heart for a sick kid. You know, yeah. pediatric diseases are my biggest interest. Um, pediatric uh, cardiology is children born with malformed hearts, otherwise healthy. The idea is can we build something that would give them a meaningful and long life? But um, so we don't really focus so much on the diseases that kill, you know, the heart diseases that kill the elderly or, or older people, got, uh, folks like us, Gil. <laughs> um, mostly on saving kids. I, I can have, have a clear conscience of that. But you're right. What if everyone lives? What happens if all of a sudden the life expectancy around the world jumps 10 years? Yeah. Do we have enough space? Do we have enough food? Here's the big one. Do we have enough water? What's yeah. going to happen? Are, are you going to have to treat the population by war because the healthcare? Uh, as everyone's surviving and will we adapt our ability to feed and house and, and get everyone clean water and education? Um, if suddenly people start living a whole lot longer, um, and what's living, um, yeah. you know, one of the biggest challenges we have here in America is that we suck at end of life. I mean, we absolutely suck at it. And yeah. I mean, like you go to a nursing home or hospice, I mean, there are some people in there that are suffering, and we're keeping them alive at the expense of their dignity. They're, you know, they're in pain. They're miserable. And we need to have a discussion. A lot of this has come up during COVID. Yeah. A lot of the people that are dying from COVID, um, you know, these are, you, you get patients in their 70s and 80s. They've got all these other comorbidities. You know, if they die of COVID, how many other life years, how many more life years was it, were they expected to survive to begin with? You know, this is a hard question, a really hard question. And it hurts when someone passes, right? Especially from a disease like 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 COVID where they're dying alone in an ICU on a vent and no one can tell them, I love you one last time. You know, they can't tell their loved ones one last time, I love you. I mean, it, it's hard and because it brings into it's it, And the reason, Gil, it's hard is because it's not just about the disease. It's about loneliness. Yeah. And these people are dying alone in these ICUs. And, you know, I, I have fought on the battlefields, Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and some other nasty cats. <laughs> but the, the most dangerous enemy, the most cruel enemy I've ever seen is loneliness. And yeah. that's a part of the death of COVID, uh, your people dying alone. And we need to have, we're talking about vaccines and open up the economy and quarantines what we need to do is talk about what it means at end of life in america what it means to be alone and are we actually being cruel when we extend someone's life several years and they have to live in a nursing home by themselves they're in physical pain they've lost their faculty i mean their senses you know i i don't know what the right answer is but we need to have this discussion yeah and, yeah um, I fully agree. I mean, all the mental disease aspects as well, right? So we are very focused on the physical part of uh, part yeah. of health, and you know, this is part of the the healthcare system uh, has never really understood the idea that mental health and physical health are intimately connected. Gil, and I, I tell you yeah. what we're doing right now as a nation is we're sacrificing our mental health for our physical health with this isolation. Right. I mean. Uh, it, 
there's a lot of people right now that are suffering a lot of effects of just being isolated for a long time. They're lonely. And, um, and, uh, and that's part of the cruelty of this disease is once you get isolated, you're alone. And we really need to start, you know, in the military, we've really destigmatized in a lot of ways, behavioral health care, because we fought a 17 year war. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, you sprain an ankle, you go to physical therapist, you know, uh, your heart, your head, you're hurting. Uh, you go talk to a counselor, you know, and, and that's it's really that's a, a social change that that hopefully comes out of the military into the civilian population, destigmatizing behavioral health care. I hope it happens. I yeah. think the military is leading by example on this. Um, but this is this is the eureka moment for the for the whole of the population. Mm-hmm. And that mental health is important. Behavioral health is important. And yeah. I don't think COVID is nearly as bad as the isolation these patients are feeling. Mm. The responsibility that these healthcare workers are feeling for patients who are dying alone. And um, and that's that's really tough. So, yeah, that, that's a hard thing. I mean, it's but we need to have some hard discussions about this. As yeah, I mean, you know this uh, more than I do, Kit. You know, uh, we have to prepare for a barrage of PTSD issues, just like, you know, people coming back from Afghanistan and other places, because we are going through a, a huge PTSD event right now. Yeah, we are. We are. Um, and, yeah. you know, it's and, under, yeah. and you're, you're, you're talking to a man who got help at the VA for, for post-combat stress after after that. I saw that kid die. Um, yeah. A lot of the guys on my team that were there that night had to like work through that. And, um, you know, what I, what I found when I was going through my counseling, I had a really good experience at the, at the VA and, um, uh, Jamaica plain and, uh, Bedford had a fantastic therapist who really was a kind of a warrior for me in terms of helping me get work through some of these issues. Um, and, and, uh, and it was like, with my own buddies, no big deal. Go get some help. Uh, you're all set. I mean, like you can't fight a 17 year war, not think your heart's not going to take a beating, you know? Right. And um, so we, I'm seeing the strain on civilian leaders, both in business and in healthcare that are making decisions to survive companies uh, by ordering people to come back to work or do things. And they're thinking about the moral responsibilities of their leadership. Yeah. You know, you wonder why a general can get post-combat stress. Because everyone thinks about the physical danger of mm. combat, but no one thinks about the moral jeopardy of combat. Mm. And these leaders in the civilian population are ordering healthcare workers and first responders and people doing their job to go out there and do it and maybe be exposed to the virus. Um, there's a moral responsibility in yeah. those leadership decisions that puts them at risk for some type of stress disorder. Mm. And, um, and, and it can be recovered, and you can actually have traumatic growth from it. And um, I'm, I'm hoping that we as a nation start to come to grips with the behavioral impact of COVID, and we look at this as an opportunity for traumatic growth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to touch on something that you said before, Kit, and that is, you know, uh, you, you asked, you know, as the population grows, uh, do we have space, water, and so on? Uh, but what the numbers are showing, I don't know the exact numbers, is that uh, population growth is actually slowing in most of the world. And, uh, you know, so the, the replacement rate, as you know, is approximately 2.1. Uh, most of the Western countries are below 1.7. Uh, the growth that we are seeing is happening in you know specific areas like India and other places. 
And so if you believe this numbers, um, what, they're, what they're predicting or projecting is we will hit a population peak in the world uh, by 2040 at just below 10 billion. And if you kind of follow that through, uh, by 2100, the world population could lose 50%. So you could go from 10 billion to 5 billion in a matter of 50, 60 years. And so that, if that is in fact true, that has a lot of implications. I mean, we have been worried about resources, but if that is true, uh, you know, what, what, what that would mean is that, you know, the value that we attribute to a human being is going to infinitely increase. Yeah. Right? Yeah, sure. I mean, like, yeah, uh, manpower is a resource. Right. <laughs> right? I mean, you own a business, you know that, right? Uh, yeah. It's a precious resource. Um, so, yeah, I'm not familiar with that data, but it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, like, things are going to ebb and flow, right? Population will do that. Uh, availability of resources. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how they looked at changes in life expectancy. Um, yeah. As a, as a function of that, you know, when I was in Afghanistan, you know, they talked about you know, the, the infant mortality rate there is really high. Mm. And what you've realized when you get there is if you ask an Afghan, you know, a typical Afghan out in the like southern Kandahar province, um, how many children do you have? And he says, oh, I have four. Well, later you found out he actually has eight, but he doesn't count the girls. <laughs> so, so, yeah. so, so when you talk about your infant mortality rate, were they even counting their the, the female children? Mm. They might not have been. So, like, it's hard to get these kinds of numbers, but you get some indication as to what the infant mortality rate was. It was extremely high. I think at one point when I got there in 2002, it was one in four, right? Yeah. Uh, life expectancy of an Afghan male, I think, was usually in the mid-40s. Um, so, when, so when you met an Afghan male who was in his 60s, that was a tough dude, right? Because he, <laughs> he'd been through a lot. You know, beware of the old man in the young man's game. But um, – I don't know how they did calculations and in increase in life expectancy, but you yeah, can take a look it. at take a look at crop yields with global warming. I yeah. mean, like actually, we're producing tons of food right now, tons of food, hmm. and um, so how is that going to play out? You know, if, if we got a lot of food, if you can solve the distribution problem, you know, because we do have food insecurity in various countries where there's a lot of food, like in in the U.S. Um, yeah, how does that play out in terms of life expectancy? What's going to happen if we have some some big wars. What's going to happen as the idea of warfare moves from blood and guts to, to science, technology, and cyber and money, right? I mean, like uh, yeah. anyone who doesn't think COVID is a war is crazy. <laughs> this is the future of war. It's science, right? That's and and the, the big question for people like me in the military is, are we really help doing a good job defending the nation right now? Because we're under a full-blown attack right. just by a virus, right? Right. But you see other countries are kind of exploiting this opportunity for cyber attacks to, to go after resources. I mean, this kind of things. This is the face of warfare in the future is you just build on natural disasters um, or you exploit natural disasters to gain advantage. And yeah. um, so I don't know how they did those calculations, what they projected with. But um, there are some countries right now where you're taking a look at mismatches in the population demographics. Yeah. Japan as an example. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, aging populations, and the question is, who's going to do the work? <laughs> right. I mean, especially you know, aging populations, you got a cultural value of taking care of the elderly. Yeah, and that takes somebody off a factory floor, 
right? Right. So uh, where's the where's the manpower? Where are the people that they're going to you know run this 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 manufacturing economic engine for these nations? I, I don't know the answer to these things, but I think it's a really interesting question. Yeah, so many different things to think about. You know, like you say, COVID is an is a is an attack. It's almost like a bit of a tease in the sense that, you know, there are certain parameters you can use to defend against it. We haven't done that very well in the U.S. Uh, but what may be coming behind it uh, could be uh, a lot more. Uh, yeah. Not more difficult to tackle. So yeah. this is a little bit of a uh, training ground in some ways, right? But yeah. I don't know if you're really understanding it. Yeah, I think the after-action reviews at every level yeah. after this are going to be really important because uh, if you're not looking at this as a, a, as an indication of things to come, we've been building to this for a while, right? Yeah. We've had SARS, we've had all kinds of other stuff, diseases. And, um, you know, we've in the past, not necessarily done a good job responding to this, you know, public health people are there, they have interesting stuff, but then they get ignored, you know, <laughs> people still sitting on the couch, eating fried foods all the time, folks still smoking cigarettes, riding around without seatbelts and motorcycle helmets. I mean, like, <laughs> it's just, uh, I mean, people still, still behave like people. Yeah. Um, but now we got a tough situation where, um, Everyone around you is a potential threat to you and your family unit, considering your family unit is a healthy unit, right? Yeah. And um, so now we're really kind of dependent upon each other. Um, the scientific literacy of leadership is extremely important for countering these kinds of things, understanding the immunology and virology of these things and the public health issues. So I hope that this increases awareness of public health concerns. Yeah. I hope it starts a whole new discussion of public health concerns. I hope that we look at this as an opportunity not to isolate from each other, but to connect with each other with health in mind. And um, the question is, where is the leadership on these things going to be? Uh, it might actually come from consumer trends. A lot of the companies I've been talking to over the last few months, we talk about how will their product development change going forward? Well, there's two values that you're going to see coming out of here. First of all, sustainability is going to increase maybe is going to be sustained, but also increase as, as a consumer value of the products they buy, but yeah. also healthcare, health and signaling health. Hey, I'm healthy. Um, right. Talk to me. Um, uh, interact with me. Uh, my family is healthy. Can I can I gauge, you know, the health of my family? I mean, you take a look at the company started by my students, uh, Whoop, you know, who are using wearable sensors and they picked up the um, COVID symptoms in their patients and they're probably not in our customers. Two or three days before the onset of symptoms, they noticed increased in respiratory rates yeah. and uh, just extraordinary success in predicting who amongst our customers was infected. I mean, the idea of wearable technologies that allow, like what Whoop does is network assessment or monitoring of your family. That's a pretty extraordinary thing. Right. And uh, we can use that to help each other be healthy. And um, I'm hoping that technologies like that get broadly adopted. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I want to close, Kit, uh, with uh, with this age. I want to get your insights uh, on this. I think you're in the best position to assess this, um, you know, having had experience in, uh, in, in warfare as well as in an academic setting. And that is, you know, as you see technologies develop, uh, they are getting more complex. Um, you know, the, the policymakers uh, on average today 
uh, and this is true in the U.S., it's uh, likely true most of the world, uh, they don't really have the knowledge or, or information to make the right policy choices. So we are coming to a point that, you know, we have a sort of a democracy-driven um, system, an appointee-driven system, um, uh, but it doesn't take into account competence or capabilities or understanding or knowledge, right? So, so do you see as we go forward from a policy and you know, system-wide perspective, there has to be some change uh, in measuring competence levels in policymakers? Well, you know, look at, I mean, um, the scientific literacy of leadership, not just in government, but in business, is being exposed right now. Yeah. Um, and uh, frankly, the hysteria, the press is not really helping um, mm. because it, you're, you're seeing crazy press reports about this, about that. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it, the public is just at the end of this pendulum swinging around. Who do we believe, you know? Yeah. The, the president's press uh, task force, CDC, World Health Organization, CNN, my neighbor, um, this woman I know at the PTO. I mean, like, where do you get your health care information? Mm -hmm. Are you educated enough to vet what is valid information? And in the early stages of a war, which it says it's very chaotic, it's very confusing. Yeah. A lot of misinformation out there. Uh, people want to believe simple answers. Um so you have to set the conditions to reduce this kind of chaos years in advance. Here, 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 here's Parker's piece of advice. To prevent this panic, you focus on K-12 through education. Yeah. Um, uh, when you take a health class in high school, it's got to be more than the birds and the bees and wearing a seatbelt. <laughs> You've got to understand why we do hygiene, infectious disease, and understand the impact of these things. Right. And so we really need to raise the bar in terms of what we we are provide the education we provide our children and the scientific literacy uh, of our leaders here's what you do yeah um, you're like okay well we got a congress which is primarily dominated by people with law degrees what do we do about that <laughs> and, and you ask parker and parker says well that sucks a b um what you do is you go to the deans of the business schools and the law schools, and you say okay uh, you guarantee that half your admits in every first year class have to have a STEM degree. Hmm. And you solve that problem. And, and then you produce lawyers who understand STEM. So, and, and, and you also uh, alleviate some of the pressure on, on, on the lack of people in STEM careers in, in, in the U.S. Um, hey, you want to go to law school, get a degree in engineering, work for a couple of years as an engineer, then it's easier for you to get into law school. Do that. I mean, like that—that's an easy way to do this. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I think also you got to think about the cultural changes in universities, Gil. I mean, like, take a look at that report. That I think I think it came out of UCLA that shows something like seventy-something percent of, of college administrators have backgrounds in the humanities. But <laughs> the trend of students uh, in in school right now is, I think, pushing seventy percent. They're enrolled in STEM majors. So there's this huge, huge cultural mismatch yeah. between the personnel infrastructure at a university versus the students versus the pool from industry and, and, and the professions, right? They, we need STEM people. But 
we're still going through a cultural evolution. I'm in an engineering school at Harvard, right? Mm -hmm. You want to talk about an epigenetic modification of a 300-something-year-old institution's core DNA. We're trying to turn this school into a school that values STEM and understands the culture around STEM. Mm. Um, you know, explain that to my colleagues in the humanities. They see things very differently. Explain that to all the administrators we have. It's hard. So um, the key is education, yeah. uh, building up the pipeline, and but also looking at the infrastructure and thinking the quest for excellence in the sciences it um, potentiates a very different culture for the quest for excellence in the humanities. And right. there's a huge friction point between that in most universities that has to be addressed. It has to be discussed and it has to be discussed by university presidents. They're the only ones that are going to solve the problem. Yeah, that that's a great prescription. So both foundational education, but also as you go forward, sort of the, the portfolio of skills and knowledge that need to be there in almost every profession you can think of. So in, in, so in some sense, you know, my belief is that we have segmented education a bit too much and it doesn't work like that anymore. Like you say, if you don't have a basic understanding of STEM, you cannot be a business person uh, and vice versa, actually. You know, I'll go in the other direction too. Um, you know, you could you could spend 24 hours in a lab, uh, invent something, but it doesn't really have any practical applications. That may not be that useful either. So it goes both ways. Yeah. Uh, but but there is a there is a need there, like you say, sort of assessing the portfolio that is optimum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I mean, like the thing is, is you want to just you want to create a lot of talent, and you got to build the infrastructure to do that talent. And but. You, you have to have a culture that kind of supports the challenges of seeking excellence in engineering technology development. And I, I, I really wonder if the majority of universities are ready to support that. Yeah. At MIT or Georgia tech or Caltech uh, or even Stanford, cause Stan engineering is king at Stanford, right? They, they get it. But you take a look at your, you know, your, some of your Ivy league schools, some of your traditional liberal arts schools that realize we got to have engineering. If we want to be a player in society, Right. But the question is, is, has the leadership really set the conditions for the proper evolution of the culture on that campus to support that? And um, so, I mean, we're, we're going through those kinds of growing pains now. And, I, you know, when I go over to Korea, I mean, like I'm so impressed by the Korean universities and the value they put on, on education. I always say that Boston's a modern day Athens. But if you take a look at Seoul, it's, a, it's, it's very close. I mean, they've got some great universities over there. Hmm. And, and they really value, look what, you know, it's happened in Korea since the 50s. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary explosion of talent and industry over there. And um, they really put a value on this. And, um, and they made the cultural changes required to do that. And we're more heterogeneous in our population yeah. than, than Seoul. So we're not, our solutions won't look the, won't look the same by any stretch of the imagination. But it can be done, and uh, we can do it and maintain our, our, our values, I think, as what we value as a nation in terms of our culture. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm hoping that happens. But, yeah, the, the STEM development of leaders is being exposed right now. And uh, if, you don't, if you don't realize that the world is going to be different after COVID, um, I mean, it's going to make the changes that happened after 9-11 look really tame. <laughs> I mean, the world is going to be very, very different.
uh, yeah. in, 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 in the next 24 to 48 months. And um, the people that get ahead of these changes are the ones that are going to, you know, benefit the most from them. Uh, but I, I just, it's not business as usual is over. Right, right. Yeah, let's hope for the best. Uh, this has been great, Kit. Uh, thanks so much uh, for spending time with me. And, Yo, thanks. Uh, Next time you're in Boston, come on by the lab. <laughs> Absolutely, will do. Thanks There's so much. Always, there's always something cooking up there, sometimes literally. Yeah, I lost. I forgot all my engineering, but I'll try. <laughs> all right, come on by. <laughs> come on by. All right, Dale, take care. Okay, talk to you soon. Bye. Bye-bye.